Good evening, good to be with you again. If you've got your Bibles, you can open them to that text that was read. Please bow with me in a moment of prayer. Father God, as we come uh, to the preaching of your word, I'm conscious it's uh, been a long day for some. And we do pray, Lord, for your grace that you would help us to quieten our hearts, to focus on you and your word, and that, uh, Lord, you would give us ears to hear. Be very conscious, Lord, as we watch these testimonies that we live in a time where there is much suffering for Christ. And we do pray, Lord, that uh, through your word tonight you would speak to us and encourage us and guide us regarding these issues. We pray this for your name's sake. Amen. Amen. God has a wonderful plan for your life. So starts a well-known gospel presentation. Certainly that was the case when I was at university. God has a wonderful plan for your life. I wonder what Jesus' first disciples would have made of that statement. I wonder what Jesus would have made of that statement. I wonder what the Apostle Paul would have made of that statement. I think it is significant that this particular Gospel presentation was devised in a North American context where Christians are facing quite a different context. If you've been a disciple of Jesus Christ for any length of time, even in our context, I think you know both from your own experience and from the scriptures and from watching testimonies like we've just seen, that the Christian life is not always wonderful. We will see that in our text tonight, where Jesus commissions his disciples and sends them off on a first mission to preach the gospel. One commentator advised up this chapter as follows, Jesus' travel instructions, Jesus' trouble instructions, Jesus' trust instructions. I want to focus on Jesus' trouble instructions. They're there. And it's very instructive that as Jesus sends out this group of uh, very unlikely followers and disciples, he warns them of trouble to come. I've structured my points or stated my points slightly differently, but essentially they move in the same direction. I talk about Jesus' power, Jesus' predictions, and Jesus' perspective on persecution. First of all, then, Jesus' power. In these verses, Jesus delegates his power to his disciples. In verse 1 of chapter 10, Jesus calls the twelve to him and he gives them authority to drive out impure spirits or unclean spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. In verse 8 of chapter 10, Jesus commands them, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons, freely you have received, freely Give. 
Now in that historical context, Jesus empowers his disciples because their message is the kingdom of God is at hand. And these miraculous demonstrations of power affirm to the observer the presence of God's kingdom. But I want you to consider for a moment the magnitude of that power. Raise the dead. It's amazing, even by 21st century standards, as we consider all the benefits of modern medicine and the superheroes of the age. You know, our superheroes can deliver you from death, from the jaws of death, but they can't raise the dead. Despite all the advances we have in modern medicine today, disease has not been eradicated and death still remains that great enemy that we have not conquered. But here in this context, for Jesus' band of disciples, no problem, no obstacle. Power over every disease, power over every sickness, raising the dead. It almost sounds too good to be true. You know, as I was preparing this message, it brought to mind a story. It's a funny story, but it's a true story. When I was finishing my seminary training, my doctoral studies, it was the end of a long process, five years, and I was about to go to seminary to defend my dissertation. And uh, this is kind of the final stage. And my wife was there and one of my daughters, she was about, I think, four or five at the time. And my wife turned to her and said, we need to pray for Daddy because this is a very important day in Daddy's life and Daddy passes this exam, he's going to become a doctor. So my young daughter turned to her mother and said, uh, does that mean he will make sick people better? And my wife said, no, no, he's not that kind of doctor. He's not a medical doctor, he's a doctor of the Bible. I said my daughter, does that mean he will raise people from the dead? (laughs) So now you know what I do Monday to Friday. It's a a funny story, but it really is a a, a true story. Yet the point I want to make here is that despite this unbelievable life-giving power at their disposal, when Jesus sends them off to mission, he predicts great hardship for them. We would have thought that perhaps God would have used, Jesus would have used this power to eradicate the danger, to overcome the evil, to conquer the would-be persecutors. But clearly, as we will see, it does not translate, this power does not translate into a persecution-free reception to their mission. Jesus, later in Matthew chapter 13, identifies the reason for this reality. Jesus here in Matthew 13, 24-30 teaches a short parable concerning the nature of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sows good seed in his field, but while everyone's sleeping, an enemy comes and sows weeds among the wheat. So the wheat sprouts and so do the weeds. The owner's servants come and say, Sir, didn't we sow good seed? Where do the weeds come from? And the master says, the owner says, well, an enemy did this. 
So the servant says, do you want us to go and pull them up? No, says the owner. Because while you're pulling up the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned, then gather the wheat and bring it into their barn. Yet Jesus predicts that there will be this coexistence between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. In the context of this parable, the weeds of course refer to unbelievers and the wheat to believers. But Jesus says, no, no, no. You see, if you're pulling up the weeds before the harvest, you might end up pulling up the wheat as well. Because my friends, at one time when you think about it, before our conversions, we were part of the tares or the weeds. And so Jesus says, no, 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 don't do that. Lest in the process you uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, he says, there will be judgment and evil will be eradicated. And so as we look at Jesus' predictions here in this particular context, we will see the continued presence of evil. Jesus predicts in Matthew chapter 10 what I can only call a very comprehensive persecution. In chapter 10, 16 and 17 he says, There will be religious persecution. You will be handed over to courts and beaten in the synagogues. In chapter 18 there will be political persecution. You will be called before governors and kings to give an account. In verse 21 he talks about family persecution. Family members will betray each other. Brother will betray brother to death, says Jesus. And a father is child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. I mean, I want you to ponder those words. Family members turning against each other, being willing to betray them to death. Jesus says in verse 36 of our text, a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Of course, in this particular historical context, it's not difficult to understand the dynamics. There would have been those in favour of Jesus, there would have been those dead sent against any kind of loyalty to Jesus. And in verses 22 and 23, Jesus speaks there of what one commentator calls general persecution. Everyone will hate you because of your allegiance to Christ, says Jesus. Now it's important to note here that Jesus is specifically commissioning the twelve apostles and sending them to minister to the lost sheep of Israel, verses 5 and 6. That's the context. But if you know Matthew's Gospel, you will know at the end of Matthew's Gospel that so-called Great Commission extends this ministry focus, this mission, to all the nations. Go and make disciples of all the nations. And just like these first disciples... You and I, as we seek to take this gospel to all the nations, can also expect opposition and persecution in the cause of our mission. 
After all, what Jesus says in verse 22 applies to us as well. You will be hated by everyone because of me. Hated. Everyone. Now I think Jesus is using hyperbole there. Not regarding the hatred, but the everyone. But simply by virtue of the fact that you mention the name Jesus, as we saw in these videos, people will turn upon you. People will hate you. People will persecute you. You will be hated by everyone. It's a present tense. It's, it's a pattern. Jesus says in verses 24 and 25, the student is not above his teacher. You and I are the student. Jesus is the teacher. Nor servant above the master. If the head of the house, that is Jesus, has been called Beelzebub, how much more the members of his household. My friends, when you look at the history of the early church, uh, it was characterized by persecution. First from the Jews, and then as the gospel began to cross these different geographical boundaries, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, there was persecution. If you look at many of the so-called general epistles, uh, Hebrews, James, Peter's letters. You look at the book of Revelation. One of the key themes is addressing the issue of persecution and struggle and suffering written to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, because we live in a time and a context where perhaps we experience very little physical persecution, we can be duped into thinking that that is the norm everywhere in the world. That's why it's so important that we have evenings like this and we watch videos like we saw tonight. Therefore tonight you and I are to take to heart the series of commands that Jesus gives to his disciples in this text. Commands interwoven with words of encouragement that will motivate perseverance. In these, the so-called discourse, Jesus gives the how to persevere as he gives his perspective on persecution. In verses 16 and 17, Jesus says, first of all, be wise, be careful. I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. I mean, think about that. Jesus says, I am the one who's sending you out. I know what awaits you. Therefore, he says, be shrewd as snakes and innocent as doves. Verse 17, be on your guard, he says. Be wise, be careful. The imagery of sheep among wolves suggests that the disciples are vulnerable to harm. Think about those two ladies going out at night. Vulnerable to harm in that particular context. Jesus' command to be shrewd as snakes can be interpreted as follows. One commentator says that we are to anticipate and avoid unnecessary danger. Don't be stupid. That's what he's saying. I don't know if you heard in that one testimony where we are told that these women, they went under cover of darkness. See? Shrewd as serpents. It would have been sheer folly to go out in broad daylight. 
So they prayed and they went under cover of darkness. Shrewd as snakes. Sometimes, my friends, it's right to flee persecution. Jesus commands that in verse 23 of our text. Now, martyrdom may be unavoidable, but don't seek it. The imagery of doves, innocent as doves, suggests harmlessness and non-violence and reflects the required demeanour of the disciple. In verses 14 and 15 we are told to leave judgment to God. You and I are not to take matters into our own hands when we encounter even violent opposition. God will judge his enemies. Verse 14 and 15, If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, says Jesus, leave that home or town and shake the dust off your feet. You see, that symbolizes uncleanness. That symbolizes that that particular home is under God's judgment. Verse 15, Truly I tell you, and here Jesus is emphasizing, He says, I want you to get this. It will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment for that town. I'm reminded of the words of Hebrews where the writer says it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God in the context of judgment. Jesus says, as you go about your way, be a witness for me. When called to give an account to your adversaries, use the opportunity to witness to Christ and his gospel. God will not desert you. He will speak through you. Be his spokesman. Jesus says in verses 19 and 20, And when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time you will be given what to say, for it will not be you speaking, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Now I notice that there are some students here and uh, Simon, you know, anytime you want a good group of students you just offer them a meal and they're going to be here. But I always tell my students that this verse must not be taken out of context. This is not a verse to preachers. It's a verse to the persecuted. Alright? I've heard people look, well it says, I don't have to worry about what to say, I can just stand up in the pulpit and the Holy Spirit will speak through me. Alright, that's taking this verse out of context. In this context, in verses 32 and 33, Jesus says that we are to acknowledge, we are to acknowledge Him before others. We saw that in that, in that video. Jesus tells us here what will happen if we do and what will happen if we don't. Whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. And my friends, in making that kind of admonition, Jesus is very conscious of the courage that would be required to honour that injunction. Verses 26 and following, three times in the discourse, Jesus exhorts his disciples to be unafraid. Do not fear, do not fear, do not fear. And given the betrayal, the persecution and the mistreatment that Jesus predicts, you can understand why Jesus gives that admonition. 
you know, you know, Jesus, you know, Jesus, you know, he gives these instructions. Now, these you need to understand these these disciples. They're kind of raw recruits. They don't have the benefit of two thousand years of church history. And you can understand as Jesus talks about the kind of reception that they can expect that they would become fearful. But Jesus says, Jesus says, don't be afraid, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. And then he says, be afraid. Jesus says, disciples can be unafraid because God will make known every hidden thing. So they can speak with confidence and boldness and in the open. Verses 26 and 27. You know, it's a very sobering thing, it's a very striking thing that all this ugliness, all this stuff, that all the suffering that Christians do, one day all of that thing's gonna, all of that stuff's gonna be exposed. God will make known every hidden thing. Don't be afraid. God knows, God sees, God understands. And a day is coming where God will reveal and God will intervene. Verses 28, Jesus says, Do not be afraid, because those who persecute you can kill the body only, but not the soul. What's the worst they can do is kill the body. They can't touch your soul. Again, we saw that in their testimony. And then in verses 29 and 35 to 31, he says, Do not be afraid because you are supremely valued by God the Father. Even the hairs of your head are numbered. God cares for the creation. God cares for you. And of course we need to be reminded of that because when we go through trials and difficulties we sometimes question God's love and care and presence, don't we? He says, don't, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. And then Jesus says, be afraid, verse 28. While they are commanded not to fear men, they are commanded to fear God who can destroy both soul and body in hell. That's the one that you are to fear. Iraqi Christian Abu Fadi and his family members were leaving the area of Mosul that ISIS had invaded. So here is this Christian family, Iraqi Christian family, fleeing ISIS. Amid the intense stress of trying to get to safety, Abu prayed for courage. Lord, help me not to be afraid. God answered his prayer when Abu spoke his courageous answer to the God's question of who are you at the first checkpoint that they encountered. This was his testimony. We are Christians, not permitted to stay in this Muslim land. Refusing to let him pass, young men came, loaded with firearms, asking more questions. Again, you can imagine how terrifying that must have been. 
Here you are a father with your wife and your children and your family. Vulnerable. Life-threatening situation. Young men loaded with firearms. Pestering you with questions. Who are you? Abu answered with honesty again, we are Christians. He was then pushed down to his knees with the words, prepare to die, with an ISIS fighter wielding a sword above him. He prayed for strength and wisdom. When Abu was told it was his last chance to convert to Islam, he gave what he thought would be a final glance at his wife, mother and sister. No, he says, I do not denounce Jesus. The sword was raised. He bowed his head. He closed his eyes and prayed. And God intervened. The ISIS official who had just arrived decided to give Abu a message to deliver to church leaders. This was the message. We are victorious. This is ISIS. We are victorious. And we will follow you Christians all over the world. We will reach the Vatican and convert the Pope to Islam if we have to. Yes, that's quite a mission. Abu wasn't sure how to respond, but respect and honesty framed his answer. He said this, we wish no harm on your people. You see, innocent, innocent as doves. Only to practice our faith as we please. In return, he was spit on and told, get out of here, you dogs. At the next checkpoint, Abu again answered with honesty and respect during 90 more minutes of questioning. Again and again, he was asked to convert to Islam with polite firmness, Abu refused, saying, I am a Christian. You know, as I read this story, I think you would agree with me, it epitomizes kind of the teaching of Jesus. Be willing to acknowledge the name of Jesus before others. Jesus' perspective on persecution in, this, in this, this chapter, I think, gives the church confidence to continue and not to curtail the mission of the church. Jesus knew what he was sending us into. Jesus knew what he was sending the church into. I think that's why he says, all power and all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. In that knowledge, go and make disciples. In verses 37 to 39, Jesus points out that our allegiance to him and love for him must supersede all other loyalties, even family. There's no option for the disciples to withdraw. No, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> the fish are biting. I think I'm going back to Galilee. And the proof of our love for Christ is seen in our taking up our cross, an instrument of death to follow. In verses 37 to 39, and Simon alluded to this, anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Jesus is worthy of our love and allegiance. We know that because of that first Easter. 
Jesus there willingly laid down his life for you and me to pay the penalty for our sins, all the while, while we were still his enemies, in order that we might truly live. It is this perspective that will encourage us to pursue mission, no matter how difficult. Some of you will know the name John Piper. He has memorably said that mission exists because worship doesn't. I want to turn that on its head. Mission exists because worship does. We worship a magnificent God. We worship a magnificent Saviour. A God who loved us so much that He was willing to sacrifice His one and only Son that we might not perish. He is worthy of our worship. He is worthy of laying down our life for. He is worthy of taking up our cross and following. Is all the suffering worth it? Yes, I believe it is. In this chapter, Jesus spells out what one writer calls compensation for perseverance. Verse 22, you will be saved. Verses 32 and 33, you will be honoured by the Son in the presence of the Father. Can you imagine? Lord, I would like you to meet so and so. Willing to honour me, to acknowledge my name before others, even at the cost of their life. Verse 39, you will gain eternal life. Verses 40 to 42, you will be given great rewards. To quote Jesus again, whoever loses their life for my sake will truly find it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our brief time in your word tonight. And we do pray, Lord, that we would take your word, your teaching to heart. We do pray for the suffering, persecuted church, even tonight. That, Lord, by your great power you would strengthen them. You would encourage them through your truth. We thank you, Lord, that your gospel is powerful to save. We do pray, Lord, for that part of the world where all those tens of millions of Christians are suffering. That, Lord, you would have mercy on those nations. You would pour out your Spirit. Where there is death, you would be bring life. Where there is hatred, you would bring love. Love for you. Where there is darkness, we pray, you will bring light. We pray this for your name's sake. Amen.